Zakawani, the flying winger. Oh, goodness me! He doesn't need anybody, Steve Zakawani! Steve Zakawani was never fun to stick up against. If it wasn't for Zakawani, none of this is possible. It's Steve! It's Steve! <laughs> this is so weird. Steve Zakawani! What's up, everyone? Welcome to a playoff edition of Winging It with Zakawani. I'm sitting in Pioneer Square just two days away from a massive, massive second leg game, Seattle versus Portland. Doesn't get much bigger than this at all. Um, we're going to reflect on Sunday's defeat, which I actually felt pretty good about. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but I felt pretty good about it. I'll tell you why. Um, we'll talk the team's health. You know, it's tough to know what kind of lineup Seattle's going to put out on Thursday night. I know the lineup I want to see, but it depends on team's health, of course. And we'll kind of touch on some of the other playoff games that took place across the league. There were some very, very good games, actually. But we have to start at Providence Park in Portland on Sunday afternoon. Seattle got off to the start you would dream of making. When Brian Schmetzer went to sleep on Saturday night, his dream was to get an early goal or get the first goal. And Seattle did that. Seattle did that. And no surprise that it was Rui Diaz. Um, if there's anything we know about him at this point is that the man loves to score goals. And in and around the 18-yard box, he's sharp, he's deadly, he's first to the ball. He, he, he sniffs opportunities. You know, there's some strikers that it's just a natural thing. They're born with it. When the ball is near the goal, they can sniff where the opportunity is going to be. They put themselves in that position and then they usually can finish it. And Rui Diaz has that package. No, he's got that in his locker and he gave Seattle the lead. Have to give credit to Portland. They responded. When you go behind to your arch nemesis at home in a playoff game, it takes the crowd out of the game. That can affect the players. You can start to try to rush things. You can try too hard and then you open yourselves up and the team gets a second goal. That never happened. Portland Timbers came fighting back. Um, no surprise whatsoever that Diego Valeri was at the heart of it. I played with Valeri for a season. Um, you know, I got to know the guy pretty good. And off the pitch, fantastic guy. On the pitch, he's scary because he's effective. Sometimes Valeri doesn't touch the ball for 10 minutes. Sometimes he's not having his greatest game. But then you check the box score after the game. And, oh, he had a goal. Oh, he had an assist. Oh, he was involved in this. And you watch the highlights, and he's putting in dangerous balls into the box from set pieces. He's always involved. And the disappointing thing for Seattle is you know that going into the game. You watch that first Portland goal again, too much space for Valeri. You can't allow him to have any space. He's the kind of guy that when you're attacking, you still have to know where he is. You still have to know where he is. And just have someone, not man-mark him, but do it by committee. Know where he is, be in communication with the centre-backs, the right-back and left-back, and your defensive midfielders. Have to have an idea which area of the pitch Valeri's in, because he doesn't defend. Valeri doesn't defend. He stays up. So that when they counter, he can be the first option, and then they can play off of him. So that's what he likes to do. You have to know where he is. Seattle didn't know where he was, and the ball finds Valeri in and around the halfway line. And much like Nico Rodero, when they receive the ball, their first look is, do I have runners? Are there players running off of me? And then if there's guys running off him, he's going to play the pass. 
And that's exactly what Valeri did. Fantastic run by the young kid, um, Abobisi. I think I'm saying his name right. Um, absolutely fantastic run. The finish was unbelievable. You got to call it what it is. It's a fantastic finish. A little dink over Stefan Fry. I mean, that's a great finish. Kept his composure very calm. The second goal, however, will have Brian Schmetzer ripping his hair out. Because that will be a frustrating goal as a coach to give up. Because there's many things wrong. One, Osvaldo Alonso gave the ball away. Now, you know how I feel about Ozzy. My favorite player, favorite teammate of all time. 90% plus pass completion. Doesn't give many balls away. But he's human. And he gave that one away. But it's because it went to Valeri that makes it even more dangerous. Valeri begins to drive. When Kim Kihi comes across, listen, either the man goes past you and the ball stays, or the ball goes, the man doesn't. You can't allow Valeri to win that challenge. You've got to go in extra hard, and then you maybe commit a foul, something, but you don't allow him to advance. Valeri wins the challenge, advances. The ball finds its way eventually to Blanco, and then there's a piece of magic there. There's not much Kelvin Leardam can do. Blanco had the momentum. He wrong-footed him. It's a great piece of skill and an even better finish. So Portland's finally 2-1 up. Now, I gave Portland credit for how they responded. I'm going to give Seattle credit. Second half was all Seattle. Some people have told me that, no, it wasn't. You're remembering a different game. You're being biased. I'm as objective as they come. If Seattle's bad, Seattle played bad. Seattle did not play bad. Second half, Seattle was completely dominating the game. I was surprised by Portland because if you're 2-1 up, if I'm 2-1 up, and I know I still have to go to Central Link Field, I'm going to try and go with the biggest lead I can. They just lost Chad Marshall. They just lost Christian Rodan. This is, we're 45 minutes in front of our fans. We're going to stick the knife into these guys. We're going to try and get a couple more. And Portland sat back. And Seattle said, okay, thank you very much. And Seattle was probing, probing, probing. Nico was all over the pitch in the second half. Waylon Francis got into so many good positions, and you could tell he's not a natural winger. The positions he got into were great. The final delivery was just lacking. There was a couple there where if the ball's a bit better, if the decision's a bit better, Seattle get a fantastic opportunity on goal. That never quite happened. But the encouragement is there. The signs are there. You attack this team in the wide areas. Of course, we all hate to remember, but I was at Portland for a season. Ridgewell, Chara, Valeri, they were there with me. That's the spine of the team. All those guys are in the middle. This team's weaknesses are in the wide areas. And Seattle exploited that. The gold came from there when Christian got into the wide area. Knew who had the early cross from there. I've already mentioned Waylon Francis got in there several times. That's where you need to attack this team this Thursday. In the wide areas. They're very, very vulnerable. On one side, Blanco doesn't defend. On the other side, Zarek Valentin, I think, can be got at. I think Victor Rodriguez, if he's on the left especially, he can really get at. Uh, um, Zarek Valentin Zarek's from Akron went to Akron he's not from there he went to Akron after me but I, I know him I know the guy he's had a fantastic season but you can get at him you can and Seattle going to have to try and attack in those wide areas 2v1s overload get overlaps from your left back and your right back on the other side that's where you can get at Portland I think if you had Harry Ship was a bit fitter if Brad Smith was fitter even Handuala Buana Christian Rodan already showed on the goal. Someone more natural in attacking wide areas, getting to some of the areas that Waylon Francis got into, Seattle would have scored in the second half. But it's 2-1. 2-1, 
I've always said is a great result away from home in a two-leg series with an away goal at stake. Now, you never want to lose. Of course not. But if you're going to lose, you want to score. And you don't want to concede too much. So 2-1 is the perfect score for that. It's better than losing 1-0. Because that away goal is key. Because you lose 1-0, you come home, you win 1-0, you're going to extra time. You lose 1-0, you come home, you win 2-1, you're losing on away goal. But you lose 2-1, you need a 1-0 win. Now, you've told Seattle, remember, what, remember those dark days in March, April, May, when the world was falling apart? If you told Seattle you'll be in the Western Conference semi-final and you need 1-0 win at home to Portland with all your fans behind you, they would have taken it. That's the position the team's in. And me, for one, personally, I'm not putting it past Rui Diaz, Nico Lodero, Osvaldo Alonso, Victor Rodriguez and the gang to get a win, 1-0 at home, even though my prediction is it's going to be 2-0 or 3-1 and Seattle advances, but the 1-0 is the one you have to go for first. Get that first goal. Do not allow Portland to score first. Don't let them do to you what you did to them, and then Seattle should be all right. When we return, we will have Keith Kostigan joining me quickly for an interview to talk from the Seattle perspective what he thinks the Sounders should do and can do on Thursday night and we'll also talk to Richard Farley from Timbers.com to get inside scoop on the Portland mindset and their approach for this game coming up stay tuned much more to come on winging it with Zach Watt. for Rui Diaz with the Peruvian national team as he looks to get on the end of something again Roldan trying to provide the service and Rui Diaz has done it the striker from Peru saying how do you do to the MLS Cup playoffs the most dangerous part about Seattle's attack Adrian is just ever flowing interchangeable because Nicholas Ladero has some freedom so Roldan Rodriguez they can fill the seams this game started with Christian Roldan playing on the right side. How does this play develop? Roldan's on the left because Nicholas Adero slid over. I love this about Rui Diaz. Everything he does, it's inside the 18. Little two, three-yard movements. Gets a defender on his heels. And what does he do for a living? He puts the ball in the back of the net. Welcome back to Winging It with Zakawani. I am now going to be joined on the phone with Richard Farley, who is with Timbers.com. Um, he'll give us the inside scoop with everything going on in Portland. We'll try and get inside their minds to figure out the best way to beat them on Thursday night. So the first question I want to ask you is, Portland won the game, I understand that. But what was the mood in Portland afterwards? Did they feel good about 2-1? Do they feel they should have won maybe by more, especially you consider that Seattle had some injuries to key players and the 2-1 scoreline isn't the worst thing in the world for Seattle. So what was the mood and what has the mood been around the Timbers team since Sunday? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Steve, because you're right. Um, you know, when you face a team that's not only as talented as the Sounders, but as uh, informed as the Sounders were coming into the game, a 2-1 victory isn't something to take for granted, right? But yeah. in the context of this series, it's not a terrible result for Seattle either. So I think there's an awareness here amongst the team that the job isn't, it's not even half done. It's not even close to being done because the matchup is just kind of playing out like it should right now, right? The home right. team is supposed to win. So 
I think the mood here um, is there's a lot of respect for what the Sounders are going to be able to do in Seattle, and there's no reason to let your guard down just because you took care of your own business. Right. That's a great point. Um, that, that goal, I want to talk about the goal, the first one, by Abobisi, because going into the season, Fernando Adi was the man. I mean, I played with him, and he was neck and neck with Diego Valeria as in the all-time scoring leader for the Timbers, and then all of a sudden he gets displaced. And then the guy that displaced him has now been displaced. Tell us kind of what's happened there and the emergence of a C and just how good can he be? Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Steve, you're asking these questions because you obviously know a little bit about the dynamics of the team down here yes. and know how important uh, Fernando Adi not only was on the field, but to the culture of this team. I mean, you've been in locker rooms where you know who the big personalities are. You know the players that people gravitate towards. And Adi was definitely one of those guys. So it wasn't a trivial matter making the decision to trade him away. But the simple fact was at the beginning of the year, he wasn't quite competing with Samuel Armenteros on the same level that Armenteros was playing at. And so a tough decision had to be made by this front office. Do you want a guy who has multiple years left on his contract taking up that designated player spot when you don't know for sure he's going to be part of your first 11, which is crazy to think about because it's Fernando Adi. The guy is really good at this game. I mean, he, he's a guy that when you're in those film sessions before the game, you always say to yourself, look, we always have to be aware of Adi because the guy is a force. I don't care what its form is. I don't care if he hasn't scored in 10 games. This guy can win a game for us or lose a game for us on the other side. So after that happened though, and Adi was traded away, Samuel Armenteros just didn't stay as hot as he was. And the team definitely went through a lot of different options. I think during that time, over the year and a half, he's really been here. uh, Jeremy Obobese has had to really fight to get playing time. And I think over the last two or three months, that fight has really served him well because he's been hungry. He's been willing to do all the little things. Like you watch Jeremy Obobese play. You saw the finish this weekend. But what really stands out to you about is his play is just the all-around game and the skill that he has to bring really the Timbers' two most dangerous players, Valeri Blanco, into the game. And that's the real dangerous part, I think, for uh, Kim Kihi and Roman Torres. If they're going to be chasing uh, Jeremy Obobese around the field with Jeremy Obobese's skill, that means you're just leaving space with Valeri and Blanco, the two players you really don't want to beat you. Absolutely. Great point there. Um, let's talk a little bit about the coach, because obviously Caleb Porter was there. I mean, he's a large figure who casts such a huge shadow everywhere he goes. You know, I've obviously known him for a very long time. Um, the new yeah. coaching staff comes in. What's the change? Has there been a change in terms of kind of the, the aura around the club? Not necessarily good from good to bad or bad to good, but just the approach, the way they do things, the playing style, the club's identity, or has it been more of a continuation? No, it's been night and day. Okay. Um, you know, these are two very different guys. You're obviously very familiar with Caleb. Yeah. Caleb has a very specific and a very successful way of doing things. But Caleb is very much has uh, his own style. It's a, um, you know, there's there's a healthy arrogance to Caleb Porter. Yes. That if you're doing things the right way, if you're playing, if you're playing your game, um, you you have the right to believe in yourself. You have the right to know that. You know, if you put in the work and you've developed the, your identity that you, you've earned the right to go out and think that you're going to be the best team each weekend. Uh, with Giovanni Savarese, it's, it's, it is different. Um, you know, this is a guy who has had a, long, had a long career in Major League Soccer and played abroad. He really does approach it from the kind of point of view of, look, each weekend you're going to be facing somebody who athletically, historically, 
the mere fact that they're in major league soccer, you've got to respect them. Mm-hmm. So we need to put in our work. We need, we can't take anything for granted. You can believe in yourself as much as you possibly want to, but if you from, from Tuesday until Friday, know in your heart, you haven't put in the work, you're going to get beat on the weekend. Yeah. So I don't want to make it sound like Caleb is not a humble guy. I mean, I think some people would say that Caleb yeah. is not a humble guy. He's definitely, he definitely knows what he brings to a team and, he has the right to be confident in himself, but there is definitely a humility in the minute-to-minute uh, way that Giovanni Savarese manages this team that is different from Caleb Porter's tenure. And with that said, the last thing I want to ask you is, what approach do you expect then on Thursday? Do you expect the Timbers to come in and try to get that first goal and then sit back or sit back from the beginning and play on the counter like they did kind of here, they did here in June and did win here in Seattle already this year. It was a very different Sounders team, of course, but... What approach do you think we probably will see from the Timbers on Thursday night? Um, you know, I don't know for sure, but Steve, I, I mean, you know from being in those, uh, those film sessions and those training sessions where a lot of times your staff has kind of identified one or two tricks, one or two tactics that you want to try to hit them with, that you think that they're, they're vulnerable to. And I think most of the time teams do come up with one or two things that they want to do, you know, trying to pull guys out of position, make this run here, play this ball here, that they feel confident in that they want to try. But I think if those things don't work early for the Timbers, I think they're going to feel very comfortable in trying to stay conservative and knowing that, look, at the last 10 minutes of the game on Sunday, after Victor Rodriguez wasn't able to convert that one chance that looked like it was going to be an equalizer, yeah. the most dangerous thing, the scariest thing, and you could see it in the coaching staff um, approach, the Seattle coaching staff, was when the Timbers were getting out on the counterattack. And that's what they do best. Yeah. And honestly, particularly with Chad Marshall being injured for this one, that's kind of the scariest part for the Sounders. Absolutely. Great point. So we look forward. Are you coming up here on Thursday? Yeah, well, I'm actually going to be there Wednesday night. You'll be Wednesday night? So, okay, so great. We'll see you on Thursday. Um, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it, man. You want the West? You want the Cup? You'll have to go through us first. The 206 to the 425. The 360 to the 253. All of us. Here. There. Anywhere. Seattle Sounder fans are going to the playoffs for the 10th consecutive year. That's what they do. And you can bet you will hear us. And now let's hear from Keith Kostigan, who obviously is no stranger to the Sounders FC family. Um, He'll have a lot of good insight on what the Sounders approach should be. And I think Keith will agree with me on the fact that the Sounders should be feeling pretty good with the result they managed to get on Sunday. Um, Let's talk to Keith right now. So first question for you, Keith, is how do you think Seattle should feel about Sunday's result? Me personally, I've always said if you go away from home, 2-1 is the best result you can lose by. If you lose 1-0 and then you come home and you win 1-0, you're going to extra time. If you win 2-1, you're out. But 2-1 gives you the possibility of just having to score one and going through. Um, how would you assess Seattle's mood? What should it be about that result on Sunday? Yeah, normally I would agree with that assessment. I, I think a couple of things. I think getting the goal early, going 1-0 up and then losing a game, I think there's always going to be a, a, a tinge of disappointment. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. You get, you, you get an away goal in a two-leg series. Um, you know, you look at the big grand scheme of things, to come away with that knowing that a 1-0 victory at home would send you through. I, I think overall you'd be happy, but I think 
I still think Smets and the, the coaching staff will be looking back on it and saying, you know, 1-0 up, you know, we're in a really good position to give away two goals so quickly in the first half. I thought it was better defensively in the second half, but I, I still think any time you lead in a game and you end up losing, there's always going to be that little bit of disappointment. But overall, in the big, the big picture, I think it's not, not the worst result at all. So what, what do you think went wrong then on Sunday? The fact that Seattle did... No, it's a team that has been very good defensively all year, but did kind of concede two, I wouldn't say soft goals, but you're looking at the first goal, is Valeri, Valeri picks the ball up, unmarked, plays a through ball, balls in back of the net. Second one, Valeri rides two or three challenges. Ball. It wasn't crafty teamwork by Portland. It kind of was very preventable goals. Um, what do you think went wrong once Seattle took the lead? Was it the injuries? Was it Portland playing better? What happened? No, I, I think when you play these derby games, you know, better than anybody how yeah. you know you get a goal momentum's with you and all of a sudden you know game plans can can go out the window even for a split second so I think that plays into it you know you say oh why don't we see it why don't we defend like we have been but when you're playing against your biggest rival you go a goal up the the adrenaline is flowing I think that all plays into it yeah. um I, I do think I do I do think Portland played well at times in the first half but I think Seattle the last time we were down there, we really defended resolutely. Yeah. You know, we were determined not to give up any chances. This was different because of that. I thought Vieri, uh, Valeri found pockets of space. So it was a much more open game. And I think that kind of suited them a little bit more in that first 45 minutes. Um, I, I think we get back home. I don't think we'll go 150 miles an hour at the beginning. I think we'll be measured and, and patient in our approach as we have been. Um, but yeah, I, I think some credit towards Portland, but also the fact that, you know, it's a big rivalry game. It's, it's in the playoffs. You go a goal up. You want to kind of put your foot on the, on, on the neck of your biggest rival and really kill them off. Kind of all played into what was a really open first 45 minutes. What, what do you think Portland does on Thursday? Do they come here and just sit back and try and play on the counter with the pace of a Bobby C? I mean, they did win here in June playing that style. Or do they come out and just try and really get that first goal and put the pressure on Seattle? How do you expect to see their game plan on Thursday? That, that's the interesting one. I think we're more suited to being a team that can sit and defend. I don't think necessarily they are. I, I do think Chara and Guzman have a good understanding in front of that back four together. Um, so they're, they're difficult to break down. But um, I, I, think, I think they're going to try go get the goal. I think they're going to try kill it off and make sure that they have that away goal as well. Um, but not recklessly. They'll still have balance. Uh, Valeria's two players in behind him who offer him protection. But I, I don't necessarily expect Portland to come back and say, look, we're going to let you gain momentum early on in the game. I, 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 don't think, I don't think any coach, you know, going away from home in the second leg, particularly in the first 45, wants to give up all of that momentum you've built by winning the first leg. So I, I think they'll be measured, but I don't think they'll be ultra-defensive particularly early on. Um, let's talk about the playoffs in general. Like, has anything stood out to you? Have any teams impressed you? I mean, obviously, RSL has scored two ridiculous goals, but has anything else from the playoffs in general? Which team has looked good? Which team disappointed? What have you thought of the playoffs so far? No, it, it's, it's weird. I, I, no, nobody's really impressed me so far, that's, to be completely honest. I think, mm. I think Sport and KC were, were, were probably more measured, what we talk about in their approach at RSL, they got a big away goal, so they'll be comfortable. I think they're going to be a big threat, you know, in, in the West. They're such a, a consistent team. They're a, 
they're, they're a team that are well coached and understand the roles on the P for me. But there's not one team, not even Atlanta at the weekend, although they're away, that you looked at and went, wow, this team is really strong. They're uh, really a team to be. Red Bulls won Supporter Shield and, and went and lost 1-0 at Columbus. It could have been 2-0. So no, nobody's really stood out, but... I think you look over the last couple of years, that's the way it's been in, in MLS playoffs. It's, yeah. you know, it, it's a team finding a way to grind through, getting results, and, and turning it on at the right time. So at the moment, nobody stands out. But I, I think when it's all said and done, I think you know, Atlanta in the East, and, and I think ourselves and, and Sport and KC will be the teams that, that should be there or thereabouts when it all comes down to it. Always a pleasure having you on, Keith. And you're coming up here, right, Thursday? Yeah, I will see you there, man. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Keith. Welcome back, Winging It with Zakwani. Let's wrap up really quickly. Three big things. Let's get right into it. Number one, you've got to take the positive from the negative. And what I would say with that is this. For the Sounders, the negative was Chad Marshall going off injured and Christian Rodan going off injured. You never want to see those guys get injured, obviously. Um, that's two of your key players who you want to play as many minutes as possible, especially in the playoffs. They got injured. But... But the strength and depth of this team is something we've spoken about. The way the game is now, it's not like it was 10 years ago where you could get by with 12, 13 players and then players 14 through 18 were you're hoping you never have to really bring on because the quality would drop off so much. Chad Marshall is the man you want him to play, but he goes off, you bring in Roman Torres. Now, this is a guy who's played a pivotal role in the team's success in the last two years. Hasn't seen much playing time this year, but he's not a bad guy to bring on. And he was actually very solid when he came on. So that, you've got to look at the positives of that. You hope Chad can play on Thursday, but the fact that Seattle can bring in a guy like Roman Torres from your bench to come in and shore things up is also a good sign. And you're hoping on Thursday that Brad Smith's closer to go, Harry Ship is closer um, fitness-wise, and you still have Andwala Buana down on the bench as well. You have guys like Lamar Nagel, who's very high on this club's all-time scoring list, who doesn't see the pitch. So the strength and depth is something you never want to see, always tested, especially in the playoffs. But we should take pride that when Chad Marshall goes out, we're not bringing in someone that everybody puts their head in their hands and says, we're going to concede four goals. No, there's quality there. And that's a great thing. Number two, the playoff games and the excitement so far. Um, I mean, the LAFC Salt Lake game was phenomenal. Fantastic game, brilliant, exciting. Um, I, I loved watching it. Portland down in Dallas, you know, Portland getting two away goals in that um, knockout game there, beating FC Dallas. I think it's going to lead me into number three very quickly, but I just think there is something about the playoffs. I, I'm a big fan of just having a single league table and doing it how it's done around the world because that's how we understand football. But I get the American way, I get why playoffs are something. I'm a big NBA fan. NBA playoffs, nothing like it. And now the MLS playoffs, it's a step up from the regular season. You can see, look at the excitement for penalties between DC and Columbus. You know, I hate penalties personally. I wish there was another way to settle these games, but I understand it's the best method we have right now. And Rooney misses, Acosta misses. They're two best players who even put them in that position are the ones that miss. Zach Steffen the guy seems to save every single penny that goes his way. But you only get those kind of excitements in the playoffs. So there is a lot to be said for the excitement of just what the playoffs have been. So 
kudos to MLS, actually, and to the teams and the coaches and the players for actually putting on a pretty good show so far in the playoffs. That leads me to number three, and that's for the playoff format going forward. My suggestion is you make the whole thing single elimination. What I mean by that is, and look, you can always find numbers that show you that home teams tend to win more, if that makes sense. But away teams are prone to open up just a little bit more if they have one chance to do it. When you know you have a home game on the back end, you're going to go away from home and try not to lose more than if that away game is your only game. Single elimination. There are some issues with it, meaning the number one seed who wins the supporter shield would play every game at home because they will always be the highest seed. If the highest seed is always getting the home game, then the supporter shield winner is always going to play at home. I understand that. But that's the reward. That makes the regular season important. That makes 34 games body of work mean something. If we are the best team of the 34 games, we get to host every playoff game we're in. We're going to try harder in March, April, May. Every team's going to try harder. It makes the regular season better. This single elimination format rewards the highest seeds even more. I don't know that it's an advantage. I think the stats actually back me up on this. When you're the highest seed and you have the second leg at home, I think it actually goes to show that the team that hosts the first leg tends to go through more often than not because they can build a lead, they can get that victory, and then you're coming home, you're always chasing. We were in that position with Seattle in 2012, 2013, where we went away from home and we got beat badly, and we're coming home, we're needing to win 3-0, 4-0. So there's something to be said for that. It's not a perfect idea, but it also shortens that entire playoff series, the whole playoffs, and you're not taking that massive break for the international FIFA window or whatever. But it rewards the highest-seeded teams more. It makes the games more exciting because teams are going to have to eventually know they have one chance they still will sit back a bit if you're away from home, but more are going to try to play on the counter-attack. We'll see more goals. We'll see more excitement as we go forward if you know there is no second leg. Just makes it exciting. Something to think about. Anyway, that's all this time for this week. Thursday night, don't forget. It's not a weekend game. It's on Thursday night. Seattle versus Portland, 7.30, I believe. Hopefully, you'll be in the stadium. If you're not, it's on FS1 or you're listening on the radio, KJR 9.50 a.m. or Spanish listeners on El Rey 13.60 a.m. Big game. That's all I can say. You don't want to miss it. I'm confident Seattle goes through and we'll be back with another podcast. This will not be the last of the season, I hope. Talking about the games. Prediction, 2-0 or 3-1 Seattle. See you next time on Winging It with Zach Warren.